Please turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of John once again, to chapter 6. John chapter 6 and verses 16 through 21. John chapter 6, verse 16 through 21. And this is God's holy, inerrant, and infallible word. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Congregation, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, two weeks ago we looked at Jesus' feeding of the 5,000 plus, and we saw how the multitudes were following Jesus aggressively, not because they wanted forgiveness for their souls or reconciliation with God, but for him to heal them from their bodily ailments or to see some miracle or spectacle. And yet with great amazement did we see the compassion of our Lord to heal these people in spite of their wrong motives and their selfishness. And then last week we looked at the reaction of these people to Jesus' healing and feeding and teaching them, and we saw that while they correctly identified him as the Messiah, as the prophet who is to come into the world, they had not the slightest idea who he really was and what he came to accomplish. And it became clear to us that these people were thoroughly earthly-minded. All their concerns was about this life and this world, that salvation for them merely meant a political salvation and that they had no interest in spiritual things at all. Now, in seeing this false mindset, we ourselves were greatly challenged. On the one hand, not to be like these Jews in interpreting redemption in a merely earthly, political, or ideological way. But on the other hand, we were also challenged not to go to the other extreme, not to throw out the baby with the bathwater in denying all real-life implications that the gospel might have in a hyper-spiritual way, that the gospel never has any implication in this world. And we saw that the kingdom of Christ is being built and still has to be built, and that the earthly manifestation of this kingdom is our big duty in the Christian life. And this has to be done majorly in two ways. First, by preaching and spreading the gospel. There's no way around this. 
It always begins with the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. No president, no ruler, no king as holy and as godly as he might be can ever turn a nation from non-Christian to Christian. Only the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ through the operation of the Holy Spirit. Don't kid yourself. Every time when there's an election, the Christians say, oh, this will be the guy. And even in the pre-election, when they do not know yet who's the candidate, they jump from one to the next, and everyone's going to be the Messiah. Everyone's going to restore Christendom to the United States. And has it ever happened? No. Because the restoration of Christendom can only be done through the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is powerful enough when it is equipped with the Holy Spirit if it goes forth to the world, shattered and preached from the pulpits of this land. But there's a second thing we have to do in order to build this kingdom. After this first step of preaching and, and gossiping, as, as you will, the gospel... And that is by teaching these new disciples to observe all things that God has commanded in his word. Or in other words, teaching them to apply the word of God to all areas of their lives and to all of society. This is the place where the disearthly ramifications come into place. Only after conversion. You cannot make a nation Christian by forcing pagans or unbelievers or secularists to follow Christian principles. We are not triumphalists. We are gospel Christians. It has to begin in the heart. The rule has to begin in the person's heart. And then it goes out. But now we have two parties in our circles, right? The ones who say it's only the heart and the other ones who say it's only culture. Why is it that we always jump from one extreme to another? It is first the heart, by regeneration, by the birth from above. And then these people who have been truly born from above, they will get to work and they will ask the Lord Jesus Christ, after receiving so great a salvation, what shall we do? And he says, if you love me, keep my commandments. And we have his orders. We have our general orders, the Great Commission. And accordingly we realized that both salvation and application of this salvation to all areas of our life belong together as much as justification and sanctification, while completely different, belong together. In other words, we are challenged to utilize a holistic view of the gospel and not a one-sided one, not an exclusively earthly view without any spiritual realities for our souls as if we just do something, and that's Christianity. Going to church, going to Christian school, applying Christian principles without ever talking or thinking about a personal relationship with God in Jesus Christ. But also not a hyper-spiritual view that hides in a corner or hides in their churches and is also spiritual and feels also pious by neglecting everything that's going on out there in the world, including the Great Commission. We saw that the gospel of the kingdom first comes to man in a spiritual way, captivating his soul in regeneration and conversion, but then immediately manifests itself in this world through everything that this new believer thinks, says, or does. 
That is the proper holistic order. It's not an either or. That's a false dichotomy. It is spiritual and it is this earthly. It comes from heaven, but it will manifest itself in this world. Now, the excitement surrounding the feeding of the 5,000 plus found its culmination in the multitudes trying to make Jesus king, if necessary, by force. And that's where we are this morning. In Matthew and Mark, we read that he sends his apostle away after that. And then he makes the disciples get in their boat in order to cross the sea after he sent all the people away. He says to the disciples, get in the boat and tells them to cross the sea towards Galilee, towards Capernaum, on the northwestern shore of the Sea of Galilee. And it says in Matthew chapter 14, verse 23, And after he had dismissed the crowds... He went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. Now, I want to point out something here just in passing. We are seeing something here that we see Jesus doing frequently during his ministry. He retreats alone in order to pray. Well, let's recall what had happened. His disciples had just arrived back from a missionary tour and they told Jesus that John the Baptist was killed, that he was beheaded. And Jesus wanted to retreat right away with them to a deserted area, probably to rest and for conversation and, of course, for prayer. But then the multitudes arrived and as he saw them, it says in Matthew 14, 14, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Not only does he heal them, but he also teaches them. And the next thing we know is that they want to make him their earthly king by force. And in the course of these events, his disciples also once again prove how little they understand about him. Now, if you put that all together, that's a lot of bad news for one day, isn't it? But Jesus does the only right thing, of course. He retreats. He goes up on the mountain by himself, but not to watch TV for distraction or to drown in self-pity with a bucket of ice cream. No, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. He turns to the Father for strength and for encouragement. Oh, if he would learn this kind of reaction in the storms of life to turn to our Heavenly Father for strength, for wisdom, and for encouragement, or oh, if we could make it a habit to bring all our sorrows and all our fears to Him who loves us. Oh, if we would just pray without ceasing. I first pastor when I was young, back in Europe. He would annoy me without end because we were having a conversation and we come to a difficult topic and he said, would you mind if we pray for a moment? And he would do that frequently. And back then, it annoyed me without end. I just wanted to talk. I wanted to do. I wanted to get to the point. And now that he's long gone to glory, that faithful brother, I understand. He was a man of prayer. He understood that he could do nothing without prayer. And boy, was his prayer real. Boy, was his prayer heartfelt. He knew that was a man who knew God. If we would just pray without ceasing.
But how do we often react when we are facing problems or challenges? Do we turn to our Heavenly Father like Jesus did? Or do we turn to worldly distractions like entertainment or eating or buying something new to substitute for real comfort and hope? We need to learn to go to God in prayer with our problems and needs and not to turn to shallow worldly distractions or substitutes. But we have to move on. And we read that after it had become dark, the sea became rough because a great wind was blowing. Remember that the disciples were in a boat on the lake on their way to Capernaum. Now, the Sea of Galilee is in reality a lake, a large freshwater lake that lies almost 700 feet below sea level. That's how low this lake is. And on the west shores of the lake, there are narrow valleys. And narrow valleys usually make, uh, by way of physics, the Venturi principles, make the wind accelerate. And so if the wind came from the right direction and it came to this valley where it was narrowed down, it accelerated greatly and it could create great storms on the lake. So the disciples uh, were in their boat on their way to the western shores. But the wind also blew from the west right against them. And so uh, it was after hours of rowing that they only had made three or four miles of their journey. And Matthew writes in his gospel that the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. So this storm must have been exceptionally strong. One can imagine that the disciples began to fear for their lives. It was now three, uh, between three or six o'clock in the morning. And around that time, they suddenly saw something approaching the boat from the east, from where they were coming from, behind them. Well, let's have Matthew tell us the story from Matthew 14, from verse 25. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It's a ghost! And they cried out in fear, but immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. So in the darkness they see the outlines of an indistinct figure walking on the water towards their boat, and they cry out in fear, It's a ghost. And when we read this, we always get the same reaction. People are smiling. Well, I say not so fast. We must not dismiss their fear as ridiculous superstition at all. Keep in mind what these twelve had seen in the past. They had seen quite some demonic and supernatural activity while walking with Jesus. It is actually us who would do good to not take spiritual warfare or spiritual realities so lightly which is, as Ephesians 6 tells us, not against flesh and blood. So our warfare is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So this is real. There is a supernatural world. There are demons or 
what they would call ghosts. It would really not harm us to live more in the awareness of this spiritual world around us. Then we would probably also pray more. To a degree, we Reformed have become rationalists. Well, none of us would deny the existence of Ephesians 6, but when it comes to real demonic activity, to real demonic activity, they would say, well, probably maybe you have to go to a doctor, you're suffering from something, or you have a nutritional deficiency, or you, you misinterpret it. Suddenly it is as if Ephesians 6 was not in the Bible. And yet the Bible again and again tells us about a multitude of spirits and angels and demons and here we are, yeah, we believe it, but then again, no, as with so many things. In theory, yes, in practical life, we don't. The disciples knew the supernatural world, as, by the way, do many missionaries who labor in Africa. They will not toy with this question. There is demonic activity in this world, and it sometimes becomes more real than you wish. So they believed in the supernatural world, but what they lacked, though, was trust in Jesus Christ. That was their big problem. There was no need for them to be so fearful if they just understood both who it was who was coming, but also who was protecting them. So they were afraid, they were panicking, but suddenly they hear a familiar voice, the voice of their Lord. It is I, do not be afraid, and suddenly their fear vanished. And it says in verse 21, Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. You have to see this. The Bible speaks to us in a very, very um, vivid way. You have to see this picture. They go from extreme panic to, It is the Lord. Come in, Lord. You know, this is a, a, a total change on a moment's notice from utter fear and desperation into great joy. Come in, Lord. So they finally recognize Jesus and the fear is gone and they receive him into the boat and instantaneously they arrive on the other side and everybody is happy and joyful. Now, there's a lot of application in this passage. What can we learn from it? Well, first of all, Jesus is Lord, and He rules over all things, including wind and waves and distances and time. We must not miss the fact that we are not having only one, but three miracles here. I don't know if you saw that. There are three miracles here in this encounter. First, Jesus walking on water. Then secondly, Jesus stilling the storm, which is recorded in Matthew and Mark's gospel. And not to miss, thirdly, the third one is often missed, the instantaneous arrival on the other side of the lake once Jesus got into the boat. Remember, they were far away from their destination when he came. And then instantaneously, it says, or suddenly, they arrived. And before these three miracles, we saw the healing of the sick and the feeding of the 5,000 plus. That makes five miracles within less than 24 hours. And one could ask, why so many miracles? And somebody could continue to ask, and why do we not see miracles today? Well, let us first define what a miracle is. 
Miracles are signs, and accordingly, the New Testament uh, frequently uses the Greek word for sign to designate a miracle. Miracles are extraordinary works of God. They are transcending the ordinary powers of nature. Knowing these two things now, we can summarize that miracles are signs wherein God overrules the ordinary so-called laws of nature which he has assigned to creation. Now, all this begs the question, still, what is the purpose of miracles? And I wish the Charismatics would listen to this, because this is utterly important. And also for those who ask themselves, why do I not see miracles? Why do I never see a miracle? Well, miracles show the world that some power outside of our natural realm has intervened. Of course, we know who the source of this power is. It is God who transcends all laws of nature, who is the author of all laws of nature. In the whole scope of redemptive history, we have two time periods Two time periods that show an unprecedented cluster of miracles more than in all of the rest of history. And these are first, the ministry of Moses in the Exodus from Egypt, and secondly, the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. If one reads the New Testament, one can easily, especially the Gospels, one can easily fall uh, for a false conclusion that this is how it's supposed to be. One miracle after the other. But these are special periods. And these periods are clustered in the Exodus or in the ministry of Moses in the Exodus and in the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ on earth. Now, why is that? Now, the key to this question we find in the second chapter of the book of Hebrews. Well, chapter 1 of Hebrews opens the book with a presentation of the Lord Jesus Christ as God and as the culmination of all of redemptive history. And we are told that He, Jesus Christ, is better and higher than even angels, better than all the pictures of the Old Testament, better than Moses, better than the angels, that He is the real deal. And in the beginning of chapter 2 of Hebrews, we are admonished not to drift away from him who is so much greater than even the angels. And the inspired writer of Hebrews explains this in verse 2, where he says, and now listen carefully, For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, and here it comes. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. There you have it. We are warned not to neglect the salvation provided by Christ, 
the Christ to whose person and ministry God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. See, that's one of the verses, one of the many verses that charismatics continuously miss. You see, miracles are signs to authenticate the Savior and his great salvation. That's why you have the highest concentration of miracles, first in the Exodus and then in the coming of Christ. The first salvation, the Exodus was a picture of the second, of the true salvation, and the first Savior, Moses, was a picture of the second, of the true Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. The exodus from Egyptian slavery was a prophetic sign for our redemption from the slavery of sin and condemnation. And Moses, the initial redeemer, was a sign for Christ, the true redeemer. And this is why Moses could say back in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you. Amen. It is to him you shall listen. This is why he could say it. He said, I'm only a picture. But the real thing, the real Redeemer will be coming from among your brothers, an Israelite, a man. The type Moses was pointing to the anti-type, the fulfillment, the sign, the picture was pointing to the real thing, as it always does. And that's the reason for all the supernatural events that Hebrews chapter 2, verse 4 enumerates with the coming of Christ. Signs, wonders, and miracles, and the supernatural gifts of the Holy Spirit. Hebrews has it all, and it says, it's to signify, sign and signify, have the same word stem, to signify that this is him of whom Moses was but a picture. And that's the reason why these miracles and supernatural gifts of the Holy Spirit have ceased after the coming of Christ. Now, I'm not saying that God cannot or do not want uh, to move any miracles in this world, but what we will certainly not see is another cluster like we have seen in the Exodus and also in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because Christ has already come and because the gospel hope, the fulfillment of the covenant of grace has been realized in his coming. The prophet has come to save his people and his coming was authenticated by God by the miracles and supernatural gifts. All these supernatural gifts, like the speaking of tongues, it was not just a babble, as you see it on TV today. Those were people who suddenly could speak the gospel message in a language that they had never learned. Not some idiotic babbling like drunken monkeys. This was real languages. The gospel was being preached to the nations, which was a blessing to the nations and a judgment on the Jews because they had refused the Savior. And now the gospel was being preached by Jews in other nations which they considered unclean in their presence in Jerusalem. 
Tongues of fire came down. What is fire? Fire is a sign for judgment, for cleansing. And they came on them. Now the gospel will go to the nations. And you will hear it in the middle of Jerusalem. You will hear the languages that you so despise, you arrogant Jews. And the gospel went into all the nations. And Jews who had never learned a language, they had never learned Germanic dialects or, or, or uh, high German and low German and, and Arabic, they suddenly could speak it all to preach the gospel for a certain time, for a certain redemptive situation. Remember that the gospel of John was being written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So in Jesus being Lord over physics, over food, over sickness, over the waves, over the sea, over distance, over wind, over time, we see once again who he really is. The Son of God the second person of the Trinity and our Lord. And that's the purpose of the Gospel of John for us, to see the Son of God in his glory. But there's a second application that we must not miss. Look at the disciples' boat during the worst part of the storm. The boat is being tossed to and fro by the wind and by the waves. The disciples trying to somehow row to move the boat to safety. The twelve found themselves in a situation of real danger, at least in their point of view. But in reality, it was not so. And I've just told you why. Since Christ is Lord over storms, over wind and over weather, over physics and over the whole universe, we are never in any real danger or in any situation over which Christ is not Lord. Romans chapter 8 verse 28 applies to us as much as it has applied to the believing disciples in the middle of that terrible storm. That we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Therefore, Jesus' very own are always safe. And lastly, let me draw your attention to a wonderful picture that is easily missed in our passage. We're having here two events that are occurring at the same time. One is the disciples wrestling with the storm, fighting and fearing for their lives. And the other one is Jesus praying in silence and solitude on the mountain. Now while the disciples were scared to death and struggling to get through this massive storm, Jesus was praying to the Father for them. And this of course is not a coincidence. This is a picture for us to get and to understand. William Hendrickson writes this, While the storm was raging and the darkness enveloped the little group of men, they were nevertheless perfectly safe, for upon the hill the Lord was interceding for them. 
End of quote. What a picture. Dear brother, dear sister, I don't know which storm of life you're currently maneuvering through or you're in right now, but remember, however high the waves might be, however fearful you might be about the future, however many sorrows you might have, however worried you might be about life, your family, your health, or anything else, however dark the night, the one who has power to still any storm can still yours too. In his perfect timing. And also let me tell you, a little-known fact, at least an experientially little-known fact. We profess it's all right, but do we really believe it? The same God who can still your storms in his proper timing has also sent them to you. They are his storms. There is no other force in the universe that can cause a storm. There is no other force in the universe that can ultimately do anything apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no other source of energy that can rule providence over all things. And these storms, as troubling as they might look, as dark as the night might be, they will work together not only for God's glory but also for your good. And now you know why I said we profess it all right. Same here. So often we forget. So often we forget. Beloved in the Lord, Jesus Christ, the eternal high priest, intercedes day and night before the Father for his people, for us, just as he did for his disciples in our text while they were in the middle of that storm. And he will continue to do so until he returns or takes us home, whatever comes earlier. As we read in the book of Hebrews that he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Amen and amen. Let us pray. O oh, most glorious triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, oh, how we thank you for the wonderful care and mercy that we see in our text, for the wonderful comfort that your Holy Spirit is giving us as we see those scared disciples in this storm. Oh, how often are we just like them. Oh, Lord, help us to trust, to trust and to hope in our God who made heaven and earth. Oh, Lord, help us. And Lord Jesus, continue to intercede for us. Intercede at the throne of God for us, that we may walk in your ways and live for your glory, and that it will be a blessing to your church and your kingdom. For we ask it in the name above all names, the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, who stills every storm. Amen.